If you were with us last week, we took the first part of chapter 9 of Hebrews. And that first part of chapter 9, the writer to the believing Hebrews highlighted the old covenant way that consisted of different features that were inferior compared to the new covenant way. And we went through some some details and some of the elements within the tabernacle and the meaning behind that and what it meant at that point in time. And again, it was designed by God, implemented by God through his people for a foreshadowing or a picture of what was to come through the life of the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. And there would be a new way, and we will talk about that today. The second part of chapter 9 deals with, by the writer, the new covenant way, the heavenly sanctuary, not the earthly sanctuary that we talked about last night or last week. And we saw some inferior characteristics of the old covenant way. Today, as we take a look, you will see the comparisons, and I encourage you to go back through and read through all of chapter 9 in one continuous flow, and you will see what you learned last week and this week and how it will all blend and highlight to what the reader wanted to get across to the believers then, and also God wants to get across to you and I today. Now, the problem with the Old Testament priesthood was that it provided a limited access and limited effectiveness for God's people. Why? Is because the limited of access was because it was based upon one man, the high priest, who was the only one that could go into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, on the Day of Atonement, only once a year that he would be able to go in and provide a sacrifice for the people of God. It was also a limited in effectiveness because the high priest himself was a sinner. He was not perfect. Now keeping in mind this epistle was written to Hebrew Christians. Not to non-believers, but to believers. And who were being drawn back to the sacrificial system of Judaism. Bringing drawn back after they've given their life to Jesus, being drawn back to the religiosity of the, of the systems that were there. To draw them back to a system that was based on works and based upon the law and not of grace. And so as the writer writes to them, don't go back to the old things. This is, a, this is the new covenant way. This is based on the a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not a, based on a church. Not based on the law. It's based on the person of Jesus Christ. And it's by faith and faith alone. But how many times people will start, you know, come out of a religion that was holding them back an understanding of God's, God's truth... They now come and become born again. They get, surrender their life to Christ. And they, they do so well the first six months. Maybe they so well the first year. But after a period of time, what happens is they get in their own head and they listen to all these multiple teachers and they start picking and choosing, going around, and they get confused and doubting and they're not sure. And they're not, if they would just keep it so simple. And just keep their eyes on Jesus and stay in the word of God and just read the word and allow the spirit of God that lives within them to bring to light what they need to know at that point in time. As they grow and mature, they'll have such a stable walk with their Lord. But many times they say, you know, I just don't feel like it today. And so what happens is you start doubting that you're on the right track path the right track and then you get enticed around friends who say you know you really need to come back because we do these these sacraments and we do these special things here and if you do this and if you sit on this way and kneel this way and if you're not doing this and all these things and if you're not wearing certain clothes and if you're not it goes on and on and on it just draws them back to religiosity Versus the grace of God and allowing the freedom that you have in Christ to live for him. That was what they were dealing with back then. And it still happens to many today. So the writer here says, don't go back. 
Why would you want to return to rules and regulations when the work of salvation has been completed in Jesus Christ, the only perfect Lamb of God? Why would you go back to anything else? Well, we see here in verse 9, he's going to emphasize or continue to emphasize here in chapter 9 the good aspects of the new covenant way, the superior sanctuary, the new covenant that is in heaven. We see here in verse 11 of chapter 9, it says, But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So Jesus is our high priest, our perfect high priest. Why would you go to any other priest? Why would you go to any other person than Jesus himself for everything that you're dealing with? Good and bad. Why would you go any and turn to anybody else? But here the writer says, is he's our high priest. He ministers in a heavenly sanctuary. He's not bound to an earthly sanctuary that we talked about, but a heavenly sanctuary. The very throne of God is who is, is actually interceding and communicating and wanting to uh, do good pleasures into your life. This is the obvious place greater than anything that was earthly built that God said to build for the temporary, uh, temporary time. But this place is greater than anything human hands could ever make is the heavenly sanctuary. The writer is getting his readers to focus on the things above, heavenly things, and not based on your relationship and your, your, your relationship with God on earthly things based on what you can see and touch. Because we live by faith and not by sight, my brothers and sisters. Regardless of how you feel, we must base our feelings on truth. We must base our thinking on truth, which is from the Word of God. Not leaning on your own understanding, but in all your ways directed by Him. That's what it means to trust God. To live by faith is means to trust God in every aspect of your life. So the writer is saying here, keep your eyes on the heavenly things here. It's far superior than the earthly things that you've dealt with. The tabernacle in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem was an amazing building. Incredible architectural feats. Amazing in how personal that can become because you're going week after week, daily and daily, going into for sacrifice. You can get attached to a building. But there was, they were earthly sanctuaries. That is nothing compared to the heavenly sanctuary where our Lord dwells. The old covenant tabernacle was made with the hands of men. And we, we can go back and read in Exodus 35 that account. But the new covenant sanctuary was not made with hands, not of this creation, the writer says here in verse 11. The heavenly sanctuary is, not an, is unable to be corrupted or altered or changed by anything man could do on this earth. Did you hear what I just said? Our heavenly sanctuary, where our Lord and Savior dwells, cannot be changed by man. The tabernacle would fall apart because of the wind and the sandstorms and everything else in the wilderness, it needed to constantly be repaired and fixed and constantly brought back into at least something they can work with it. But it was touched by the worldly things and it was touched by the time of decaying because over time things would fall apart. But our heavenly sanctuary where our Lord dwells, our Heavenly Father dwells, is not touchable by man. And how many times have we seen 
man tried to mess with God's word and tried to get rid of God's people and tried to alter the things that God said. How many times have we're witnessing in our time today where truth has been established by God and their world man is trying to rewrite things away from what God's truth is? Pick a subject. Anything that is a covenant is established by God like a marriage between one woman and one man. The creation of man and woman. What does family look like? What is truth? Man has altered what God has said you will not touch. There's a, there's a curse, there's a consequence when you go against and you add or delete from the word of God. See that in Revelation. So when we see here the writer, he says, why would you go back to these things? This is what the truth is. You must move forward with this regardless of how you feel and regardless of what anyone else tells you. You must move forward with the truth of God. Why? Because he sees it, we see right here, the writer says in verse 11, good things to come. There's good things to come that have arrived. All of this foreshadowing, this type of tabernacle is now fulfilled in and through the life of Christ in our priestly ministry in heaven. We are now living eternal reality. No longer needing a pattern from God to show us what was to come. It is now happening. It's happened. And then he continues in verse 12. He says, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And so he's sitting here. Why would you go back when you, you have a perfect high priest who dwells in a heavenly sanctuary that cannot be corrupted in any form or fashion by man? That, that in the past there was blood of goats and calves that were used to cover sin. But now Jesus, his own blood, has entered the most holy place once and for all. It's done. It's complete. It's not a daily thing that you must do. This is something that was completed when Jesus died on the cross, was buried for three days, and resurrected from the dead. To obtain eternal redemption, to receive eternal salvation, to be saved from your sin, it is complete in Jesus Christ. So we see these contrasts over the next verses, 12 through 15. You're going to see these contract features between the, the earthly, but to most, more importantly, the superior um, heavenly sanctuary. The first one is this contrast the writer shows is between the animal sacrifices and Christ's sacrifice. And he says right here, animal sacrifice was sufficient for a temporary covering. We know that by studying it last week in, in, in the Old Testament, if you're with us on Wednesday nights. But only a perfect sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice, could obtain eternal redemption. The sacrifice of the goats and the calves and stuff did not give a permanent solution to man's sin. It was purely a covering. That's why it was daily sacrificing with the blood of these animals nonstop. Can you imagine if you were the priest? Every day you woke up, you were slaughtering thousands of animals for the sins of the people that you were ministering to. I wouldn't like that. That would be a terrible job. But God said that's what you were they were going to do. It was a job. Not a ministry, really. They didn't really want to do it. That was what they were called. That was what they were to, to do because God commanded that the Levites would serve in a capacity and Aaron, the, the, Arianotic, uh, the Arianic lineage would be the high priest or the priest that would serve within the tabernacle. But that's what they did every day is to provide a way, to provide a covering of blood that was sacrificed to God so that God would not judge the people. But we see that Jesus' sacrifice was superior. 
It was perfect. It was voluntary. It was complete. And it was motivated by God's love to send His only begotten Son for you. The old covenant way wasn't that way. Can you imagine finding animals that were voluntarily ready to go get slaughtered every day? That didn't happen. Was it perfect? Absolutely not. High priest wasn't perfect. Aaron's sons were definitely not perfect. Was it complete? No, it was just a covering. It wasn't a washing away of sin completely. And it was motivated by love because Jesus loves you. So the writer starts talking about the inferior animals and the superiority of the heavenly of Christ. And Jesus Christ's blood is superior to the animals. And I'll give you some of the key things here. First is that the blood of animals could never solve the problems of human sins. Remember, Jesus Christ became man so that he would be able to die for people's sins. His, his sacrifice was voluntary. No one made him and no one took his life. He voluntarily gave up his life for you, the love for you. The animal's blood was carried by the high priest daily into, or at least once a year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur that we call today, and goes in once a year for the sacrifice for the sins of the people. And we studied that last week. I encourage you to go back and listen. But Jesus Christ presented himself in the presence of God as the final and complete sacrifice for all the sin of the world. The animal sacrifices were repeated. Jesus Christ died once for you. And finally, no animal sacrifices ever purchase eternal redemption for you. An animal could not do that for you. Their blood could only cover sin until and when Christ's blood would be take away the sin. We see that in John chapter 1, verse 29. Now we see here in verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean sacrifices for the purifying of the flesh... How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So we see the second feature contrast between the old covenant way and the new covenant way. And that is around not only animal sacrifice versus Christ's sacrifice for you. But we see here the writer says there's a ceremonial cleansing and a conscience cleansing in verses 13 and 14 here. If an imperfect sacrifice were received as a sufficient for the Israel's covering of their sins at that time. But they had to be done over and over and over to ceremonially cleanse them. It did not change morally who they were in, as an inner man or inner woman. It was an outward covering, a veneer as I would say. Oh! I'm right with God today. The priest sacrificed for me. He went to the priest and the priest said a few things and did the animal thing. And whoo, I'm glad he was able to do the ceremony today because now I feel better. I can go back out and live my life without the fear of judgment of God. That's what they lived like over and over. Again, God designed. But it was a foreshadowing of the fact that God was going to come and the bulls and the goats and these ashes of a heifer and when they sprinkle in for, to help to, to purify, to bring purification of the flesh for that period of time is inferior 
compared to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because the blood of those bulls and goats, even that special red heifer, did not change the conscience of man. Only accepting Jesus Christ as the living sacrifice for you, believing in what he has done for you, will cleanse your consciousness. And if that hasn't happened, my brothers and sisters, then you're sitting here today dealing with a lot of shame, guilt, and a lot of things, a lot of weight on your shoulders of all the mistakes because your conscience has been dealt with by the surrendering of your life to Jesus Christ. But today's the day of your salvation for you. You can surrender your life today and let your conscience be cleansed by Jesus because he's the only way that can, only one that can do it. You've tried everything else, even religion. And look where it got you. Just knowing who Jesus is doesn't save you. It's a personal relationship where you've surrendered all. That's who saves you. Even the ashes of a heifer. They sprinkled it in. They put it in the water. They did this. They took the hyssop. And they were doing all kinds of ritual things to help someone. You go back and read Numbers chapter 19 verses 1 through 10. Or hang with us on Wednesday nights. We'll eventually get to chapter 19. But this was not the way God designed long term. He said that was for that period of time. It was a foreshadowing of what he was going to do in and through Jesus Christ. And this is important because it was fulfilled and done away with when Jesus offered a perfect cleansing for you and I. Keep in mind, that means there is no value in this holy water kinds of ceremony that churches still do today. Many churches still today go through ceremonial things to make it really kind of a super spiritual kind of thing and say, I have holy water here and let me sprinkle you with holy water and let me cleanse you with holy water and let's add this to the holy water. That is of no value compared to, it's inferior, it's the old covenant way compared to the new covenant way when Jesus is cleansed all. Do you believe as a, a child of God that your sins, your life has been cleaned, cleansed completely by the blood of Jesus? Oh, I hope you've got that settled in your mind. If not, you will be enticed to go back to places who are throwing the holy water around so that somehow you feel more right with God. You're no different than the Hebrew believers who the writer's writing to to say, don't go back to the old covenant way. How much more shall the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's what the writer's saying here. He said, why would you turn around from this? The new covenant is eternal. I have put my laws in your mind and write them in your hearts. Hebrews 8.10 we studied. You don't have to have man telling you laws and rules and all the things you do and don'ts. God has etched them onto your heart and in your minds from conception. And he's been working in your life ever since. I don't know about you. But if it wasn't for that, I don't know where I would have been. Or where I'd be today. This work is done by the Holy Spirit of God we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-3. through 3. 
But the Spirit cannot dwell within us if Christ Jesus is not, had not paid for our sins on the cross. That had to happen before we could have salvation. Because Jesus Christ is without spot, no blemish, he was able to offer the perfect sacrifice once and for all. And with that comes a cleansing of our consciousness that cannot be done by some external ceremony. It demands an internal power to change your life. And because of that change that has taken place in your life, you are now, your conscience is clear and able to serve God. Now we see also noted the word conscience mentioned a few other times in the scriptures. Let me give them to you because I think it's very important that you go back and read those sections and I'll give those to you now. Our conscience is a wonderful tool given by God. When your conscience is cleansed, it is able to freely serve God and be free from the bondage of the past. But if you don't, let me give you a warning. That's what, that's what pastors do. We give warnings. You may, not, you may not accept the warning. You may actually get mad at me and get angry with me when I tell you, but I'm just telling you what the scripture tells you. You can, deal, you, you can take that up with God. But let me tell you, if you don't allow the Spirit of God to change you and cleanse your conscience, here's one of three things that might happen to you. We see that our conscience can be seared, 1 Timothy 4.2. We can see our conscience can be defiled, Titus 1.15. And we also see that our conscience can be evil, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, which we'll take up here in the near future. If you don't allow and surrender your life to Christ, that is where your conscience will go. It will be evil. It will be defiled. And unfortunately, there are some that will come to a seared conscience so hardened by a iron, hot iron that it is incapable of change. That is a scary place to be if you, I was you. That's why I, I, if you hear anything is my love and my passion for you, for you hearers who have not surrendered your life, you've been playing games. You're playing with eternal life here. And if the Spirit of God is touching your heart right now, surrender all. Surrender all. Because you, you have no guarantee. None of us have a guarantee for tomorrow. That's why I always those warnings. Because when you read the scriptures, and it's so clear in the scriptures what the writer is trying to tell him, and what I'm trying to tell you by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm telling you, it's not the time to be messing around with your eternal life. For a temporary moment of pleasures of this world that has, is enticing you to go down the, down the toilet. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Allow the cleansing of your conscience. Allow those dead works to no longer. Because that's what religiosity would do. He's telling the writers, telling these people, don't go back to the law. Don't go be going back to these ceremonial rituals of religion. Because it's just dead works. There's nothing alive. There's nothing eternal about it. It's nothing good for you. It's just going to hurt you. It's not going to help you. So don't turn around. Don't go back. Keep moving forward. Verse 15. And for this reason, he says, he, Jesus Christ, is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So Jesus' work on as a mediator, a mediator between you and God, representing you right there in the heavenly sanctuary. He did that because of his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. And he is there interceding for you and I every single day. Why? Because Satan, the accuser, is constantly accusing you every day. 
And he's your mediator. He's my mediator. He's the heavenly work of mediation that is based upon the perfect sacrifice that he's done for you. Every sin that was offered under the old covenant, under the made up in faith under the law, was just an IOU. It was just an IOU. The question is, when was that IOU going to be cashed in? It was going to be cashed in at the cross when Jesus would come on the scene and pay the payment of all the sins of the entire world. The beginning of Adam and Eve all the way through, he would be paid on the cross and accomplish redemption for those under that first covenant. And this is important because this verse right here, verse 15, makes it clear that there was, no, there was no final complete redemption under the old covenant. You could not be redeemed. Those transgressions, those known sins that you do, were covered by the blood of many animal sacrifices, yes, but not cleansed until the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross. And you can go back to Romans chapter 3, verse 24 through 28, probably, about that, 26. Now, verse 16, we see another one here, the cost of the sacrifice. For where there is a testament, an agreement, there must also be, also of certainty by, let me start there, there must also of certainty Necessity. Sorry. Let me start with verse 16 one more time. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament, a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. So we see here a, test, a testament or an agreement. He's speaking of a, a will, will and testament. So you're alive, you go to someone and you get a will and testament drawn up about your life and what needs to happen to your life, and that is in place while you're alive. You do not do anything with that agreement, that will, until when? The testator, the one who wrote the will, you, are dead. Once you die, that's when the testament is then read and fulfilled based on the agreement that was written there of what you're going to do with your millions and millions of dollars, of course. And your pet cat. Which was probably at the top of the list or something. <laughs> I'm going to go off track here a little bit. I always told the girls... We had a dog, Christy. I said, just know, you have to love the princess. You have to love the dog because she's going to inherit everything. And, and you know, those who take care of the dog gets the inheritance. You know, I always joke with them saying that. But I, for some, it's like that, right now. But there was a will and testament. It was written out. It was something there so when the person, the testator, died, that is when it was fulfilled. That's when it was being able to be accomplished, the wishes of that person, per se. So here we see what the writer is saying here is a sense that this last will and testament only takes effect when the person, the testator, who made the testament dies. Therefore, Jesus had to die for the testament to be fulfilled. For the new covenant way to be fulfilled, he had to die first. That is why if Jesus did not die, then the gospel is null and void. And Jesus himself said, made it very clear to you. Do you know when? When this all took place? In Luke 22, verse 20, when he took the cup and saying, this cup is the new covenant and my blood which is shed for you. He's the testator. He died. And that is what would fulfill and bring about a testament. 
the new covenant for you and I. Verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Verse 20, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Remission meaning forgiveness. So clearly, death was necessary in the Old Covenant way. Virtually every part of the sacrificial system was under the law of Moses and was touched by blood, sprinkling all the time in some way or fashion. That was a requirement. Because without shedding of blood, there would be no remission. There would be no forgiveness. So with the foundational principle of God's dealings with men and women, today people think that you can sin and get rid of your sin in your life to clear your conscience, as some people would say. All it does is it'll take some time and they'll forgive. Just give it some time. It will forgive. No, your conscience will not be cleared by time. Some will say, I'll do some really good works for God. Check. Not going to clear your conscience. Or how about good, decent lives? I have a good life. I'm a good person. I'm not, any, I'm not killing anybody, you know. And you think that's going to clear your conscience and make it right that you would be forgiven of all your sins. It won't. Some try to think, oh, I'm associated with other godly people. I go to church. I go to this church. I go to that church. My grandmother's say, my grandfather's say, my mom's say, my dad's say. Someone, please account for me. Not going to save you. Association is not going to save you. And some actually believe if I just simply die, I'll be forgiven. It will all take, it would just all go away and I, it will, I don't have to deal with this. Let me assure you absent from this body does not mean there's just life stops. But people think this way. But if there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. There's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And there is no perfect forgiveness without a perfect sacrifice. And our perfect sacrifice is who? Jesus Christ. That's why we have the assurance of forgiveness of our sins. That's why our conscience is clear. That's why we can serve God freely and openly because of the grace of God. Because he purchased us propitiation. He took our place on the cross because blood must be shed for your sin. But out of the love of Christ, he says, I will go and put myself on the cross for you and anyone who believes in me or trusts me with their life, that my blood, that cross moment is for you. Do you believe? Verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
So we see it was acceptable for the copies that God gave Moses to Aaron and his, his people to create the tabernacle was just a picture. It was just a copies of what the heavenly sanctuary, the perfect heavenly sanctuary, looks like. And it was important that these would be purified. Yes, it would do this, but the heavenly things themselves are much better in the sacrifice than these things. So it can that heavenly things themselves could only be purified with a perfect offering in heaven. It cannot be substandard. It had to be perfect. And Jesus was the only one perfect. Verse 24. For Jesus has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. Verse 26. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus' sacrifice was made on earth. But it is basis, it was based upon his continuing work as a mediator, as a perfect high priest, as a testor, he in, in, in heaven, now, current today. The question is, do you believe that? We are not depending on a high priest on this earth to annually visit into the Holy of Holies to help take care or cover your sin. We have the high priest, the mediator, who has already dealt with that sin. Not that he would offer himself often. He was offered himself once, and it's only once that you offer, he was offered. He was not offering like the animal sacrifices every day, or once a year for the, the Day of Atonement. But no, he did it once to cover it all. Why is that important? Why am I emphasizing that? Because there's a lot of bad teaching out there that goes against what the scripture clearly says here in the scripture. He, Jesus, is not and does not continue in a sense where he is constantly offering himself as for atonement and a sacrifice every day. His sacrifice was once and for all and perfectly satisfies God's holy justice. This passage teaches on a principle and is a direct rebuke to churches who teach a practice and a theology that says that there is a continual sacrificial taking place of Jesus Christ every day, every time they have Mass. That churches who say during their Masses that they are in their time of celebration and the Eucharist is served, that is a, sac a living moment sacrifice of Jesus Christ once again. That is absolutely indefensible scripturally. That completely goes against the scripture and is wrong. Jesus died once and for all. He doesn't continue to sacrifice himself like an atoning sacrifice, like a lamb being slaughtered every day when you have this formal ceremony of mass and you bring the Eucharist and the wine and you say he is dying and died for us once again to this day. It completely goes against the scripture. It's false teaching. Any church that teaches that is absolutely indefensible. If the sacrifice of Jesus were not perfect, then it would not have to be continual and constant. But Jesus' sacrifice was perfect and complete. Verse 27, and as is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. I'm going to touch another hot subject here today. 
The scripture here is talking and he simply brings up the obvious point. If it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Very simple, straightforward. For you as a believer, you understand that. You've given one life, and when you die, you die. It's obvious. It's clear. And Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And this principle is indisputable. It seems to be very clear and obvious to you. But what this scripture doesn't really address, but does address very clearly, and that is reincarnation. The scripture is very clear here. Once you have lived and died, that is it. You don't die, live, die, live, die, live, die, live, until somewhere, somehow, something aligns just perfectly. I've met someone who wanted to come back as a cat. Because she felt that was the perfect life. For some cats, it's pretty, pretty perfect. I mean, they're, 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 they're taken good care of, you know. <laughs> Little fluffy. <laughs> With a gold chain around the neck. I don't know. But it does not, reincarnation is not real. We do not have this eternal reckoning of some, after some number of lives, you've coming back down the road here, somehow everything will be reckoned and taken care of. This life is it. And once this life is done, and God decides when that life ends, he knows when it starts and knows when it ends, there is face, we will face judgment. For those in Christ, Bema seat, you'll be looked to see how many rewards you will get for following Christ and doing in serving God. But those who do not know Christ, you will receive a completely different judgment, and that will be the judgment of your sin, and you'll be cast into hell. But this life is life is it. This means that there are no second chances beyond the grave, regardless of what other people teach. Again, some churches teach that somehow you go into purgatory or go into some other place after you die and somehow someone can pray you out of there or somehow you can do something behind the scenes to get yourself enough brownie points, enough gold stars to show that you did good works and kind of lobby with God somehow to prove it all so that somehow you can finally go to heaven for eternity. It's just lies from the pit of hell, my brothers and sisters. And why do people entertain it? When the scripture's clear. You're appointed, all men and women are appointed to die once. That is the overall principle of it. And yes, people are going to say, and I'm going to say to you, there are times where God does some unique things for his purposes that goes out that is not an absolute principle because we see examples in the scripture where God has said, this is the principle, but the absolute here is I've got other things I want to do with people that go outside of that principle. And what are those, who are those people? First was Enoch in Genesis 5.24 or Elijah in 2 Kings 2.11. They never died once. It was an example of the rapture taking them out of here from life into his presence. We learn from that of what the rapture is going to be like for you and I. The second is that several people in the Bible were raised from the dead. 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 13, Matthew 9, John 11, Acts 20. There's many examples where God raised them back from the dead. That means they had to die twice. And of course the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. You and I. I hope and pray we're going to be the, the time where Jesus raptures us out of here and we will not die. But the main principle is you were given one life and you will die. Now verse 28, we'll close here. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. 
To those who are eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time. Apart from sin, but for salvation. The focus of Jesus' first coming was what? To deal with sin. He came the first time and set his foot on this earth to deal with your sin and my sin. The sin of the world. Pride. Selfishness. And he did it. Complete it. It's done. The second time he comes back and he sets foot on here and comes back to rapture us out of here, to snatch us out, come back in his presence, he will be in the clouds and we will meet him up there and that is for salvation. That's when we're complete and in his presence. But now, having dealt with the sin problem perfectly, he will come back and deal with everyone's salvation perfectly. He knows who's saved and who's not saved. He's coming to rescue you and I, his people. And notice here the writer says, to those who eagerly wait for him, question I have for you today. In your relationship with Jesus, are you eagerly waiting for him to come and get you? To usher you in to the heavenly sanctuary? Or does that make you squirm in your seat? You don't need to squirm. If you're right with the one who's going to save you, you don't squirm. You're on the edge of your seat waiting with anticipation, looking up. Perhaps today, Lord, you're coming back for me. The work of Christ is a complete work. It's a final and eternal And he ministers now in heaven, that perfect heavenly sanctuary, that new covenant way. He is on your behalf as a believer. He is ministering to you. The believer's sanctuary is in heaven. It's not on earth. The believer's father is in heaven and his savior is in heaven, not on this earth. His citizenship, your citizenship, mine, is in heaven. We see that in Philippians 3.20. Our treasure should be in heaven. We see that in Matthew 6.19. Our hope is in heaven. A true believer walks by faith and not by sight. And no matter what may happen on this earth, my brothers and sisters... And the chaos that will happen, guarantee, a believer can be confident because everything is settled in heaven. No man, no woman, no system, no government is going to change your destiny to heaven. It is finished. It is complete. Choose today to follow Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. That is the new covenant way.